0: Hello, and welcome to episode 87 of the Greater Than Code podcast. I am here today with my lovely fellow panelist, Jessica Kerr.
1: Good morning, and I am here today with another lovely podcaster, John Sowers.
0: Hi there,
2: and I'm here with another lovely panelist, Rain Hendricks. Lovely, I like that. I am here with a very special guest, Chad Fowler. Chad is General Manager of Developer Advocacy at Microsoft and a venture partner at Blue Yard Capital in Berlin. He is also an avant-garde Jack saxophonist and the author of multiple books, including The Passionate Programmer, which is a great book. Hi, Chad. Hi.
3: Welcome. Thank you so much. So happy to be in this place that actually isn't a place, because I'm actually at home, but it's really nice to be talking to you.
1: Those are the best places.
3: They are.
0: (laughs) That's so weird. I'm pretty sure all of us are at home, too.
3: I was going to ask, yeah. So it's nice to be at home with you all. Wow.
0: Home the Conf.
1: internet is amazing. I remember
0: that time I met Chad Fowler at HomeConf. That was pretty awesome. <laughs> <laughs> was Aaron Patterson keynoting? Doesn't Aaron Patterson keynote every single conference?
3: Well, he definitely keynotes HomeConf, I'm sure of that. He's constantly tweeting about him.
0: I want to get Gorby Puff in for a keynote.
3: Gorby? <laughs> That's a good idea. Has anyone heard Gorby before? I haven't. No. I've only seen.
1: These are Ruby people, right?
0: Yeah, sorry, Jessica. There must be a cat in the functional programming land, but I'm not aware of it.
1: There are cats in Scala, but they're all like category theory.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Which is great.
1: Hello, kitten.
0: What's your identity function?
3: (laughs) Do we need to put Tender, Love, and Gorby Puff in the show notes? Or should should we talk about who that is?
0: Oh, that's okay. We'll just move on, Chad. We're more interested in you than Aaron Patterson right now.
3: Oh, okay.
0: And we have to open with our traditional question. Hopefully, you've never listened to the podcast before, and we'll catch you completely off guard and get an honest answer from you, Chad. What is your superpower, and how did you develop it? My
3: honest answer is I don't have one because I'm not very super. But I have listened to the podcast, and I was sent a, well, and I was sent a cheat sheet actually. Uh, before the podcast. So I knew you were going to ask it. And then I was reminded you were going to ask it. So I thought, well, what am I going to say now? I think if I have to answer that question, which I don't, I understand I really don't have to. But uh, if I have to, I will say that my superpower is that I can fairly quickly develop some model of what other people are thinking and feeling in a different context. And I say model because I don't know that it's right. I'm sure it isn't. I have no idea what it really feels like to be any of you. But the shortcut for this is probably empathy. I believe I am very empathetic. I'm told that too. I was once told on Twitter, hey, I thought you were very empathetic, but this really disappointed me what you just did. So I have some evidence that others have at least thought that in the past. Uh, but that empathy. person
1: did not have an accurate model of you in your context. Uh,
3: maybe. Maybe he was exactly right in that moment. I'm not sure. But, it's important
0: uh, to note that empathy is a process. It's a practice. It's not an attribute. So you can have not behaved empathetically and still be an empathetic person.
3: That's nice. I appreciate that. I
0: definitely attempt to
3: behave empathetically all the time, and I make decisions usually based on the reactions of the people that I'm interacting with and how I think that they will feel and perceive them. I believe I developed this via years of dealing with bipolar disorder and and my process of trying to recover from that, if that's even possible. So the process was the sort of usual go to psychologists and psychiatrists and and all that and get, you know, medication that I think at least at the time and probably now was just sort of trial and error, even though there are some that are known to kind of work for some people. But it really is not much of a science yet, as far as I know. So there's that part of it, and then the part that really works once you get things under control with some stabilization is a whole lot of introspection, a whole lot of mindfulness training and meditation and, you know, whatever you want to call it. That's the part, I think, that led to what I perceive as an increased sense of empathy within me.
0: That's really interesting, Chad, and I definitely want to talk about the mental health aspect of that, find that fascinating I personally was not a very empathetic person until I decided to transition and I looked at people in my sphere that I admired a lot. And I tried to ask myself, like, what is it about them that I admire? And empathy came up again and again. And I decided sort of consciously, this is something that I want to develop. This is something I want to get better at. This is something I want to practice fully. Was it? the same sort of conscious decision for you to get better at that, or is that a side effect? Uh,
3: I think it's both.
0: It was a a side effect first,
3: but I started to notice it because I think when you, when you spend a lot of time training yourself to be mindful, you are basically, you know, I think meditation practice, for example, unless you're doing it for some spiritual reason is about learning to be aware uh, in this really intense way. But you do it in in a period where you're quiet. It's almost like you know mindfulness for people who aren't yet ready to try it for real. You do it by yourself in the quiet where you're not distracted. You practice and then you go out into the world and you attempt to have the same level of active awareness of yourself uh, out in the world with a bunch of different external stimuli. But when you do that enough... It's almost like you're a third person observing yourself and your interactions with others. And I think when you get into that space, you observe the others very closely. So, for one, you actually become more empathetic, uh, in or at least your, your behavior becomes more empathetic, and uh, your actions become more uh, empathetic. But you also then notice how others are interacting with you. And for me, that was when I started to appreciate people who, like you were saying, the people that I really looked up to, how they... How they made others feel were the ones that were always listening very closely and were empathetic. Uh, You know, there was this one guy who was named Chad also that I worked with early in my career. And I remember remarking at one point to a coworker, he will always remember the names of people you tell him in your stories. And when you see him after months, he'll ask about something very specific that you told him. And it's not because he has a photographic memory because it wasn't true. He forgot things all the time. But when it came to things that he could sense that really mattered to you and were somehow personal, he would always bring them up again. And it made you love the guy and it made you feel comfortable. And it's not that I wanted to go around and like employ tools to make me feel loved or to get people to love me, you know, as a sort of strategy to win in life. But it's more I love the way I felt interacting with this guy and I wanted to make people feel that way, too. And I identified empathy as being an important part of that.
1: So when you were using introspection as a means of recovering from bipolar disorder, or at least it had that effect in bipolar disorder, I don't know a lot about it, but I know that you go from like manic times to like depressed times and that there's a lot of change in the same person. Mm -hmm. Did you develop models of like yourself in another phase of that?
3: Yeah, I think that's a good way to say it. Yeah, you have to do that. The hard part, of course, is to Watch yourself in the moment. And I mean, really, the core of this, this whole introspection thing is to get to where you can observe yourself feeling things as they happen and analyze the source of the, the emotion and be able to actually control the direction it goes. So there's the in the moment part which is the really hard part but then obviously when you're sitting alone and there aren't some sort of external stimuli and you're still practicing this you might go through the course of a day and retrospectively do that analysis so yeah i think so it's not anything none of this is really as formal as developing a model that you could say i've now have a model of you know how jessica thinks and perceives things but there is this abstract model that I do have of you. And I, and I use the word model mostly just to represent the fact that it's inherently inaccurate, but that it is a thing that I have produced in my head that I rely on and, and try to use to, when I talk to you, I try to do it in a way that is helpful to both of us um, and works with how you like to be interacted with and what's most effective for you.
1: I, I often think that we don't like, I don't interact with you, the chat in the world. I'm really interacting with the chat in my head. Yes, would represent my model of you. And I have expectations of that chat. And sometimes the chat in the world doesn't match up. And then, then it's just that's disturbing.
3: Yeah. And and so, you know, I think some people don't even have much of a model of the people around them that they they operate on. And I have been that person and I continue to be in some cases, they don't bother. It's not part of their their MO, uh, so to speak. It's
1: really hard to update your model of, say, your spouse, because you think you have a really good one, and yet your spouse in the world is changing, and it's hard to detect that.
3: Right. Or you might just be someone who inherently, like as a default, doesn't really update your model for individuals, but rather only does it for groups. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, the least empathetic person that I know, who I won't name, but uh, this person will basically stereotype everyone and then when you interact with them what you hear from them is about themselves and you know no personal connection Mm. Um, you know there are very successful people like this too i think life is probably a lot less painful if you don't connect deeply with people but also has less meaning and less depth
0: yeah that's that sounds kind of empty i want to touch on maybe follow up on jessica's question um a little bit and um I also suffer from bipolar disorder, and luckily medication and therapy have been very effective for me. But I definitely have different ways of thinking about myself when I'm in a different frame. When I'm manic, I feel like I can do absolutely anything, and I throw myself into whatever it is that I'm working on, whether it's coding for work or working on a side project or doing music or writing a book. I have this model of myself as like, kind of a person of boundless energy and a person of like great focus and and an achiever. And conversely, when I'm in a more depressive frame, I find myself feeling very needy, feeling like I need a lot of affirmation, like I need comforting and it, it makes me feel weak. And I know that the real person that I am, I would love to have a comprehensive model of who I am that adapts to those two frames but it really feels to me like I'm a disjointed person as I move back and forth between those, those extremes. And I'm curious as to, do you model yourself differently depending on the, on the frame that you're in?
3: Yeah, I try not to. My, my bipolar disorder uh, is a different strain, too, where I don't have the ups and downs. The diagnosis was called something like bipolar mixed and what mean that means you're basically manic and depressed at the same time uh, and you know you get waves of that too unfortunately the mania with bipolar mixed never feels good it just results in being angry and irritable so i would have a nice combination of angry and maybe even near violent and super depressed <laughs> at the same time the worst of all worlds But I I totally get what you're saying about you think of yourself as this person. You have this identity and this, you know, it is like a almost like you've transformed into a superhero when you're manic. And then the depressed version of you can believe that that's the not real version, the superhero version. And now you're the Clark Kent or, or whatever the alter ego is of your superhero, which is sort of a loser. Yeah, I, I certainly have gone through those things. And Being self-aware and really understanding that these are happening and being able to recognize them as they go has been a very important part of recovery for me. And this recovery process, I mean, I'm talking about like 22 years since I had a, severely, uh, a severe episode of any sort. So I almost talk about it like it's past tense, although I try to correct myself because I know that it doesn't actually go away. But yeah, you're right. It, it, it is like you are two different people, or maybe even multiple different people, and you have these, these models that you settle on for yourself. And in the moment, it's really easy to believe that the current one is the real one, and the other one
2: isn't. So I also have a history of bipolar disorder uh, in mm-hmm. my family, uh, and I haven't been formally diagnosed, but I did want to say that it's, I think, really helpful that people are starting to talk about this more op- openly, and especially... You know, people that you really look up to and respect to, to realize that they might be going through similar struggles to you and that they're still able to be successful, it gives, it gives you a little bit of hope, you know, mm-hmm. that things can get better. So I really appreciate that. Yeah, I've, I've
3: experienced the same. And now, a question for, for those of you who may be bipolar. I believed in my manic state when I was younger. I believed that bipolar people could recognize each other in public. Like when you met someone, you knew that's one of us, and you would connect in a certain way. Does that resonate with anyone? Anyone think that's true? I have never thought that. No, it might have just been a a manic thought, you know. But I still feel like there's something even now when I'm not not really experiencing these highs. You know, there's a connection I get with people, and I can usually tell. Like it's a combination of I know I'm going to be friends with this person. We're going to connect you know, in a, in a special way of some sort.
2: And I think they have a problem like this. I wonder if part of that may be that you have a more sort of outward focused mentality about other people. Like I'm not an empathetic person by nature. I struggle with that. And I, and I have to work really hard to remember, to think about other people. And it seems like that's just a thing that you do. It's yes. just part of how your brain works.
3: It is, yeah, which is why it's the thing that I said was my superpower if I have one. It's also it's difficult. you know. I think it's sort of like when people say they have perfect pitch as a musician and you say to them, wow, that must be amazing, and they say, no, it sucks because I can always tell when things are out of tune, and they always are. The equivalent for me is I am exhausted by being around people because I don't just let myself be selfish and blah, 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 blah. I, I'm constantly trying to read and see how I'm affecting them and what they're feeling. And, and if I'm speaking to a group, even like now I can see you all, I am doing this with all of you. I'm you know, trying to gauge how this is going and how you're feeling about it and whether you wish you could say something or you know, am I talking too long, that sort of thing.
2: Yeah, it's interesting because a- I'm exhausted, but for the opposite reason. Because that's an effort I have to like put out to make myself be aware of those things when I want to be. Mm, yeah, makes sense.
0: And Chad, that kind of ties into self care, right? I mean, as an extroverted introvert, sometimes you get overwhelmed by the emotional energy that you're having to expend in a given situation. And I know that, uh, you know, I go to conferences a lot, and I love conferences. But I will absolutely get to a point at some point during every conference that I'm at where I just feel peopled out and I just need to retreat and I need to spend a few hours just with me and my laptop in a hotel room drinking bad coffee just to recover.
3: Yeah, my equivalent to that, whenever I go to a conference or, or really even on these business trips that I do now, I don't do anything at night unless I really have to. I will be completely on like if I'm keynoting at a conference And then I will go to my room as soon as I possibly can and actually sit there with the lights off in silence for as many hours as I can stand to stay awake so that I can have that time to recover. Even sleeping isn't recovering from that.
1: I get in the bathtub and turn the lights off in the bathroom and soak in the water to de-stim.
3: If if I weren't a giant, uh, I would do that too. But almost no hotel hotel bathtub is big enough for me. (laughs) But that sounds like a good idea.
1: Does it get easier? I mean, is this a muscle? Will it get stronger as we use it?
3: Mm, Which part? Empathy or recovery from dealing with people?
1: Rain, in your case, the part where it takes so much effort, does that effort get easier as you use it? And Chad, the part where you continue to choose to make this connection and just doing that through eight hours of solid meetings, does that become more natural as you do it more?
3: For me, absolutely not. No change, no improvement. And I believe, you know, in terms of statistics, I'm now on the way toward death. So uh, I don't think it's going (laughs) to,
2: I don't think I'm going to learn this. What do you think, Rain? For me, because it it didn't come naturally. It's something that I, I have had to develop. And I definitely, I think that there's a big difference in sort of my emotional intelligence quotient today versus even, say, five years ago. And the fact, or at least, you know, my belief that it's a skill, I, I think, is also hopeful. And I, I think other people who study emotional intelligence agree that it to some extent can be trained. Yeah,
3: I, I agree it can. So I, we may be answering different questions a little yeah, bit. Yeah, I think so.
2: I believe that
3: you can get better at empathy and connecting with people. I don't think that I'm ever going to get to a point
0: where it's less exhausting for me, though.
1: So we can yeah. get better at doing it. But it doesn't suck less energy from us.
0: So, Chad, I'm working with a, a woman named Naomi Freeman on a book. And our title is actually inspired by your book, The Passionate Programmer. We're calling it The Compassionate Coder. Um, mm. And um, we have a model of empathy that can be illustrated by Venn diagrams. So the first diagram, you have two circles that are not touching. And that's apathy. And the circles are other and self. The second diagram um, has self-eclipsing others. And um, the, in our model, we call that narcissism. In the third Venn diagram, you have others eclipsing the self, which we call codependence. And then for true empathy or how we're defining true empathy, self and others are coming together. And I think in what we're sort of proposing in the book is that empathy, if you're doing it right, shouldn't be a drain, but rather should be a free and open exchange of emotional energy. If you're practicing empathy with someone who themselves is practicing empathy, then you get a dynamic where you're feeding off of each other in a positive way. There's a a positive feedback loop. And I wonder if in your model, you're allowing the other to impose itself too much on the self. Probably.
3: Yeah, that's really interesting. Also, I probably would have stuck to I have no superpower had I remembered you were writing this book. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, only because you're going to outclass me here in terms of uh, everything we're going to talk about. But um, I'm okay with being outclassed. It's normal for me. I think I have to allow this to be the case. Not in all cases, but you know, I'm at work. I'm talking to groups of people. We don't have a contract together when I you know, go to a meeting with a venture capitalist that we're going to be empathetic, right? I seek out people who will be, but for work, you don't get to choose. So it's different with every interaction. A lot of people I talk to, it's the first and maybe only time I'm ever going to talk to them, too. So certainly, I like what you're saying, it makes a lot of sense to me. I, I can remember and imagine myself talking to certain individuals where you feel energy from it even though you are still practicing empathy. I just haven't thought about why that is. So that's a that's something to ponder. Okay, Certainly so need to read the book.
1: That implies that if empathy were more of a general practice in our culture, as in some small groups it is, that we wouldn't feel it as such a cost. But then there's a spiral of it's not a practice, so it feels expensive, so we do it less, so it's not a practice, so it's more expensive, etc.
3: Mm-hmm. That can yeah. make sense. I mean, for me, I don't think I have a choice. So it's like what Rain said. I just, this is how I do it. And for Rain, it is a choice. So we have different experiences there. Even though I have no choice and I'm going to do it anyway, it makes me tired.
2: Your your model of empathy, does anyone want to guess who it reminds me of?
1: Is it the Satter model?
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so in her model, it's actually uh, in some ways pretty similar. It also incorporates the context. They're surrounded, so it's the self, the other, and the context. And her idea is that all three are necessary in equal measure to be congruent. And if any one is lacking, you you get into incongruent coping behaviors. And she, the analogy she uses is sort of postures that people develop. So if the self dominates the other, that's blaming for her. That's the posture of blaming which she illustrates by one person standing up and pointing down at another person. And if the reverse is true where the other dominates the cell for her, that's placating, which she illustrates with the opposite. Someone's kneeling down and sort of begging up towards someone else.
0: One thing that I think is interesting, there's been some research into actually empathy. The empathy response is measurable by equipment, by medical equipment. They know where in the brain the empathy response happens and they can monitor it in real time. And um, there is in-group empathy and out-group empathy. And in-group empathy is a natural inclination to feel more empathy toward people who are like us. And out-group empathy is harder to come by, and that's feeling empathy for people that we don't feel that connection with. And that's generally apathy. The antidote to apathy being expand the circle of how you define people that are like me. And I wonder if some of the energy that goes into what you're describing, Chad, is trying to find that common ground of how is this person like me so that I can understand them.
3: Mm, that rings true. Yeah, I think that could be the case. I, I hadn't thought about it that way, and I, I don't tend to do the sort of research that you two apparently do. Uh, I'm a, I'm a fly-by-the-seat-of-your-pants, do-things-intuitively kind of person. Maybe that's my superpower, actually. <laughs> but uh, I, I really don't have one. It's true. Yeah, I think that might make sense. Because if you can't really... You need to have some sort of pattern to match to be able to create a model for someone. No, It might be that you just spend all of your time exploring how people think and talking to them about it. But I don't do that, really. I do it probably more than most people. That's a, an interesting concept, that you're just trying to figure out how everyone is like you somehow. It also maps to just how I think about compassion as well. Like I, I went through a period where I, my wife and I were translators for a Tibetan monk, and so we spent many hours a week, some with him living with us, actually. So we were with him all the time, pretty much when we were awake, and we were translating his teachings. He was a Buddhist teacher. Uh, in Louisville, Kentucky, because that's where monks go to teach Buddhism, obviously. And one of the sort of sound bites that we took away from that time is, if you believe in reincarnation, which we don't actually, we we weren't uh, religious about it, it was more of a philosophy for us, but if you do, one of the ways that Tibetan Buddhists, at least in the Mahayana tradition, try to get you to be compassionate to others is to believe that since reincarnation is infinite everyone that you know has been your mother at some point in time there has been that that flip of the relationship which i think is a, a similar thing to what you're describing though you know more intense if you even allow yourself to just suspend this belief use that as a metaphor when you're talking to people which i actively try to do in a sense that's kind of like trying to figure out how they're like you but it's more trying to figure out how they are like a person that theoretically, at least in the sort of typical model, is someone you would really be compassionate and empathetic toward.
1: For, for knowledge, to, to learn to, something new, we need to hang it off of something we have in an existing model. So maybe I have compassion and some understanding toward myself, so I need to like connect to that with other people. Maybe it also works for someone else that I really care, care about and have a model of. Maybe I can hang other people off of that.
2: Have any of you heard of, heard of the word sonder?
1: Goody, new word.
2: No. So sonder is one of those sort of untranslatable words. I actually forget where it's originally from, but it is the realization that each random person around you is actually living a life that's as vivid and complete as your own, you know, full of their own ambitions and stories and friends and relationships
1: oh i totally get that sometimes when we're like just driving down a city street and i'm looking at all these houses and i'm going oh my god there's a family in each of those and they're all these people. people with all their own yeah <laughs> all their own complications and problems and just that's so much to be in the world
0: yeah they're everyone is the star of their own story right they're, yeah, exactly. they're not supporting
3: cast in your own I I wrote a post about empathy several years ago that got picked up by a bunch of other sites like Life Hacker and stuff. And it was called Empathy, Your Most Important Skill, I think is what it was. And and in it, because I was writing something, I came up with a new idea that I didn't have before and acted like I already had it It because that's what I do. But uh, (laughs) one of the ideas that I have been practicing since is no matter where you are, like if you're bored, instead of looking at your phone, look at all the people, find the one that you connect with. Steer, you know, in terms of just your first impression least and realize that they are the center of the universe because for them, they are just like you are
2: for yourself. It's beautiful. See, that's the kind of thing I wouldn't think to do unless someone mentioned it.
1: As opposed to people watching, which I hate because people like, oh, look at all those people. Let's judge their clothing. Ah, can we not? But yeah, can we look at them and like imagine them as full people? I like that.
3: Yeah, it's really hard. It's really exhausting when you're standing in front of hundreds of people at a conference and you think that's the time to do it, you know, but
4: it's
3: (laughs) it does put things in perspective even when you're speaking, you know, like right now people are going to listen to us. So now, of course, is a different time in the future, but every single person that's listening to this is the center of their own universe and we don't even know most of them. We're just weird, not even supporting actors until maybe this moment when it's the first time they've ever heard of me, for example, and they're listening to me speak. And everything I'm saying is somehow about them and how they perceive the world.
2: One of the things that's difficult for me, and I wonder if this is relatable for other people, because emotional self-regulation and self-awareness and empathy and all of these emotional intelligence skills, because they're not natural for me, because I have to work to inhabit them, they feel forced and and thus sort of fake. And so I have imposter syndrome when it comes to being an empath.
1: Or doing empathy.
0: Yeah. I think that what Jessica just said ties back into what I said earlier, Rain, and will help you with your model if you will accept it, that it is a practice. It is not an attribute. So you, you can't be a faker unless you're saying, I am empathetic, therefore I do this thing if you think of it instead as I am deciding to practice empathy, that by definition makes you empathic. So I think the problem in part might come from your framing. Yeah. I I think at some
2: level I understand that, but it's not always like, you know, with imposter syndrome in general, just knowing how you ought to think about a thing doesn't always mean that you do that.
0: Think that way. Yeah, that's totally fair. (laughs) (laughs) Life would be really nice if, that were possible but i think this ties into what chad was saying about being able to observe yourself and you can observe the reaction that you're having to something and you don't have to let it take over you can observe the reaction and validate the reaction say yes this is something that i'm feeling this is something i'm allowed to feel but you can make the choice as to whether that becomes part of your self-image or not
2: yeah, the, the very first thing that Chad said about this was that he has a model for how other people are, how they're thinking, how they're feeling. And I, I, th- I thought it was really interesting because this combines two of my favorite things, emotional intelligence and model building. This is a sort of systems thinking approach to emotional intelligence, and I like that a lot.
4: Yeah, I found it fascinating. Like one of the things you said in the beginning was that you started by paying attention to yourself. And that it's sort of counterintuitive to the way that most people think of empathy and that it's focused on others. But I think you found it one of the interesting keys there and that like paying attention to yourself and what you're doing and letting that happen in life and in the real time and as you're being mindful allows you to also notice the other people and your interactions. And so you can pay attention to the whole field rather than just focusing on other people or just focusing on yourself. I know I have a bias that I tend to focus too much on other people and sort of ignore my own reactions. And so I have to bring it back to myself and be more self-aware.
2: Virginia Satir said that the basis for a therapeutic relationship was being centered within yourself. That if you don't have that self-awareness and self-regulation, to use emotional intelligence terms, if you don't have that for yourself, you can't connect to other people in a way that will be therapeutic and healing.
0: Yeah, because you need a model of how emotions work before you can start understanding other people's emotions.
2: And you also yeah. need to sort of get out of the way of, you know, you need to get out of yourself. And so you're not, your emotions and your inability to manage them aren't getting in the way of the relationship you need to have.
3: Yeah, I think that, you know, the, what seems paradoxical about focusing on yourself first really isn't because we think of focusing on yourself is the same as being selfish but it isn't and you know most of the time the people that you think of as self-centered actually aren't self-aware at all they're just not aware and it comes out as them not caring about you because they also aren't even watching what they're thinking and feeling for me part of the experience of trying to be empathetic is looking at behaviors that i don't like of others and trying to understand deeper what probably motivates it It tends to usually be some sort of fear or you know self-loathing but usually a fear that springs from somewhere leads to behavior that i ultimately don't like with other people similar thing that i also learned when dealing with the buddhists is that trying to become personally happy in a true sense like if that were my ultimate goal in life and i think it is it should be That sounds selfish when you say it that way. But actually, if you find true happiness, in order to do it, you can't do it by being completely selfish. And that is sort of a Buddhist viewpoint of driving toward your own personal true happiness. But picking apart what true and happiness mean in that context, it will lead to altruistic behaviors, and it will lead you to be a better person in the way you interact with others. There's a whole bunch of things that feel like paradoxes, but I think they all come down to self-awareness and and trying to follow a path that is true and not just default and by coincidence.
0: There's this term in sociology called prosocial behavior, which uh, encompasses altruistic behavior, among other things. And they've done studies on prosocial behavior and find that it generally emerges or it emerges more readily when a given person feels connected to a higher purpose. And one of the examples they gave, most of the research in pro social behavior has been done in educational settings. That's where, that's where it originated. And they found that students were able to do the quote unquote boring work if they had a sense of why that work was important to achieving a goal that was tied to a higher purpose. And I think that what you're talking about, about like the goal of being a happy person can give you that purpose and can give you the motivation you need to do the hard work of getting there.
2: In the rubric that Daniel Goldman uses for emotional intelligence, one of the there are five skills, self-awareness, self-regulation, social skill, empathy and motivation. Uh, the thing that's challenging for me is I don't find for myself that motivation is a skill I can develop. So my attention deficit disorder means that motivation is either a thing that I have or I don't.
4: Yeah, that's been my experience as well, like sort of bootstrapping myself into motivation is not a skill I've developed at this point.
0: It's really interesting as each of us are opening up about our particular mental health challenges and how that impacts our model of the world, our model of ourselves, and how we interact with other people. And uh, it's really interesting the different ways that our mental health challenges can at once provide shortcuts or make certain things easier and make other things harder. And I think it's great that we're actually talking about this. I don't think that that is something that gets discussed very often. The filters that the way our brains work biochemically or, or whatever model you ascribe mental health challenges to, the impact that has on our interactions is not just about like the feelings that we have, but those feelings that we have are projected outward and interact with the way we interact with others.
3: Yeah. And as you said, they, I mean, we started it this way, I guess they present both uh, shortcomings and superpowers because usually when something is bad for you, you fill in the void with something that's good in terms of, you know, like I know rain from work and I know that his analytical mind is something that I can't approach. And I think that's where the balance is. If rain says he has trouble with empathy, there's all this other stuff that he does that fills the I don't even want to say void because it sounds too negative, but, you know, there's a balance. It reminds me of a couple of things. One being, when I was in college, Oliver Sacks came and spoke, and uh, he is the doctor that they based the movie Awakenings on. He's written a bunch of great stuff, like The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat, a bunch of interesting books. Oh, I love Uh,
0: that book. I remember reading that, yeah.
3: Yeah, I I even had... uh, a recording of the opera that Michael Nyman wrote based on that book, which is an interesting choice uh, for a, a topic for an opera. But the thing that he talked about at this thing at my school was how illnesses or, you know, perceived illnesses, whether they be mental illnesses or something else can become an important part of a person's identity. If you take the illness away, it actually causes them problems and I always applied that to my own struggles with bipolar disorder from then on, that I realized it is an important enabling factor of who I am, as much as it's a disabling factor. I recently had, like really just a couple of weeks ago, I had the, the chance to record a, a jazz record with a group in New Orleans, and half of the group were seasoned legends in, in avant-garde and free jazz. One of them being William Parker, who is really, if, if you ask anyone in that community, who is the bass player, they say, w- William Parker. He's been on everything. He's played with everyone and really a wise person. And I, because I was pl- doing a session with him, I got to do things like sit at breakfast and ask him questions. And we were talking about the rules in music. Someone in the band had said, like, am I supposed to do this or that during the session the day before? And he kept saying, there is no supposed to. In this music, there is no supposed to. And the the thing that got really interesting is he started expanding on that over breakfast and said, artists, they spend time trying to figure out how to find their voice as an artist. But actually, every artist is born with a voice and through schooling and practice, they constantly just cover it up. That's what you're doing as you go deeper and deeper into the mechanical practice of art. But if you start taking that stuff away... And here's where maybe this becomes relevant, I hope. But if not, maybe it's an interesting anecdote. (laughs) He said, like, you know, maybe there's someone you just say, man, he always plays quiet. He's just always playing soft. And it becomes a thing like, you know, it's an annoying thing. It's maybe even something as a player you feel bad about. Like, yeah, I just always play soft. I can never really project. And he said, then you come to find out that your mom always played soft, too. And her mom always played soft. And it's part of your DNA. And, of course, that's a a weird exaggeration because I doubt that's actually the case. But what he was trying to say is there are certain characteristics that you may even think of as an artist as being a shortcoming that actually are your voice, your unique voice as an artist. And at a certain point, you have to just let go and take away all the junk and all the supposed to stuff out of yourself as an artist and just believe, okay, this is who I am and I'm going to do this very well. And do it expressively, and be comfortable with it, and be me. So uh, you know. Then, as with all lessons that I learn in music and software, they they go both ways, and in life, you know. And I think that's one that I'm going to take with me from that session forever, uh, whether I'm doing venture capital or programming or writing music.
1: I read somewhere the other day that uh, when you reward people on merit, you know, your annual performance review. You can only reward fitting into the system. You can't reward changing the system. If we're going to let ourselves change the world around us, we have to let go of the supposed to.
3: I wonder how, as a manager, how I could actually apply that. I'm not sure it's actually it's true. I think the, the merit-based reward systems tend to do that to people, but it's not inherent in them. You know
1: what I mean? Yeah, maybe it's just the merit-based systems that we see in companies that, that do that. But I, I, my current theory is give people, give teams constraints and then give them some definition of better. But also we have to let teams change their environment even while they're changing. Like in evolution, uh, a species don't just evolve to fit a niche. They also create a niche And so as an organization, if we want to get better, we have to let our components change, influence the org as a whole.
3: Yeah, that's interesting. I'm thinking of some specific people that I know that I love to work with that are also very frustrating to work with. Because, you know, if I bring this person in, they're not going to do the thing that I hope they're going to do. They're going to do great stuff, and it's never going to be what I want. And I have to be willing to deal with that in this context. And the constraint usually for me as a, a leader is I have the budget to get one person, and I actually need this one thing. So this is not the time I pull you in because you're going to make a mess. Uh, it'll probably be a beautiful mess, but you know there are only certain times and environments where that can work. But I like the idea of trying to challenge myself. I, I hate uh, these systems, by the way. I'm not trying to be an apologist for merit-based reward systems and annual performance reviews. I don't know if I have a better alternative to them that actually works, but I hate them. I can't tell you that. But I'm, I'm interested to try and challenge myself into figuring out whether I am rewarding people for fitting in and rewarding people for staying within the rails is probably a better way of saying it, because it's not just about personality fitting in. It's about going down the path that I expected them to go down and doing it well, as opposed to breaking it and changing the model altogether.
0: I recently wrote the Post-Meritocracy Manifesto, and it's gotten about 700 signatures at this point. And one of the things that I talked about at the beginning, before the manifesto itself, I was talking about some of the criticisms of meritocracy, And my main criticism of meritocracy is that the word merit is never defined in an actionable and repeatable way. And I think that our default is we ascribe merit to people that we recognize. We say, I see something in you that is like me, therefore you're meritorious.
1: Or like the parts that I like about me.
3: Is there a way to define it in a way that's repeatable and measurable?
1: Only on a meta level. I think it has to be contextual.
3: So um, what what would be an example?
1: You, you mentioned something earlier. Sometimes you have a particular job that you need help with. And for my own work, I try to distinguish between am I trying to help or am I trying to participate? And if my goal is to help, then I need to like not force people to explain in detail all the whys of what we're doing. Just what do you need done? okay. I'll do that and I'll come back with questions when I need specifics or if it gets too hard and I think it's time to reconsider versus participate. I want to understand all of the whys and I'm going to change the system as I'm in it. I'm going to make a beautiful mess. Uh, So I think maybe on both those levels, when you're trying to help, then you can define merit on how much did you help, which there's probably indicators of that somewhere somewhere probably um, to some degree industry or task specific. But then if you want to measure are people participating, then you can't say this year I'm going to accomplish X, but you can look back and say, what did you do that was surprising? What did you change or adjust or teach? What did you do that you didn't expect to do, but uh, had an effect?
3: Yeah. If you divide things that way, that makes sense to me. (laughs) Do you tell people when they start jobs, I need you to be helping at this point versus participating? Is that part of the explicit way of measuring quote-unquote merit and being able to make it more objective?
1: And as you're helping, you can gain the context that helps you participate constructively later.
0: Yeah. What do you all think about OKRs and that system? You're familiar with that? Any system you come up with is, is subjected to being gamed. So where I work, which is Stitch Fix, we don't have merit increases. We don't have bonuses. You are leveled, and we have a leveling matrix with clearly defined roles and responsibilities. You can be promoted based on demonstrating that you can do the work of the next level up. But everyone who is a principal engineer like I am makes the same salary. Everyone who's a lead engineer makes the same salary. We have... um, 360 reviews, but those are intended to make us better at doing our jobs. They're not part of our compensation review. And what happens is that every six months, a compensation committee gets together to decide if the salaries for everyone at a given band are fair and are keeping up with industry changes. So we've actually separated the perception of merit and your compensation. I'm glad that we do that because that removes a lot of opportunity for bias. The only bias that's left in our particular approach is where you get leveled, and we've tried to address that by being very explicit about the roles and responsibilities.
3: I guess there would also be – I mean there's probably lots of opportunities for bias that are just not as obvious, but you've taken out – a, a severe one, right? Like yeah, that's fair. Which projects you're asked to work on and whether or not you're asked to lead people versus not. And certain things are probably seen as cooler projects than others. Just I'm making this up. I don't know what it's like to be at Stitch Fix, although sounds really nice from what I know. I've got lots of friends there, and I'm a customer. Good job, Stitch Fix.
0: <laughs>
3: and you didn't pay for this or ask me to say it, but I am a customer. It's good. Even for a giant like me, it works out. Yeah, I was wondering like the OKR kind of thing, you say every system can be gamed. I think every system not only can be gamed, it is gamed, like almost by default. And yeah, the- so
1: can you pick can you pick OKRs that where the gaming is reasonably closely aligned to actual usefulness?
3: Yeah, it's hard. As
1: opposed to those local optimums that we get when we incur velocity or something dreadful.
3: Yeah. I I like the theory of OKRs and those sorts of systems. And I remember being in my young 20s thinking that was a great way to manage. And now I will not work in an environment like that. I don't think it works.
2: For me as a systems thinker, I think it's really important to look at these behaviors and see if there is some systemic reason that they arise. So one of them is this focus on extrinsic motivation. So performance bonuses, things like that. Another is... This focus in management on measuring targets and output and standards rather than some other choices. And what is the system within where these things arise? And I think that it's this Western management style that is top down and hierarchical. I I think a lot of. I I learned a new
1: word the other day. Do you want to hear the new word? Yes. it's, It's heterarchy. Yes. For a system that is. That is, I mean, it's hierarchical in the sense that there are a lot of people on one level, and then there's another level that's kind of above that and overseeing it. But it's not top all top-down control. Each level influences the level above it and the one below it. So you, you picture the information flow going both ways because the word hierarchy for us implies top-down control instead of coordination between layers. So- you sound like you knew that word already.
2: I, I do I, I really like the concept. Uh, a, a lot of this comes from sort of the the non Taylorism. There are there are other models of management other than Taylorism and Fordism and by the numbers sort of top down management. There's the Toyota system. There's management cybernetics. There, there there and what you're talking about is one of these. There are ways to manage people that allow you to focus on intrinsic motivation where you measure people based on their capability and the variety that they have available to them in terms of choices they can make, actions they can take. Uh, One of the big differences for me is who gets to make decisions in your organization. The Western model is that managers make decisions and workers execute decisions. The The systems thinking model is that decision-making is integrated with the work, that everyone gets to make decisions. And a lot of this comes down to what is sort of the, the management ethos. I think on on the one hand, it's management is about control management is about, we use extrinsic motivation because it's the only way we know how to control people because. Because you can only like,
1: think in terms of Newtonian push forces. Right? Like, why would matter move if it wasn't pushed on? Because
2: right? like Pavlov was right. Like this stuff works. We know it works. And so we use it. And because we don't have access to other options, you can't, intrinsically motivate people when you're focused on controlling them the, the other option is for management to be focused on learning and growth it's possible to be intrinsically motivated by your desire to help other people to act in solidarity with the people you're working with and things like that you won't get that in a hierarchical system but there are other other options
3: mm, that's interesting i know as a worker in the last several years Actually, I remember the first time I did it, but I didn't always do this. Anytime I took on a new challenge, I would tell myself explicitly, this is all about personal connections to other humans and enriching my life and theirs by how we interact with each other. Because the whole thing is going to be too hard to do if it's just about the salary. It's not going to be worth it. So, you know, like when Rain and I worked together before, I was VP of engineering and then SVP of technology at Living Social during massive growth, you know, unicorn time, which is paradoxically not a fun context to be in for most companies because you're growing so quickly. The culture is getting broken. You know, it's nothing but messes. And I knew going into it that it was just not going to be fun unless I made it be all about people. So I I jumped on this intrinsic motivation thing to get me through it and it did that was one of the both best times of my life and worst depending on the perspective from which you look at it the first time I did did this that I remember was when I wrote the first edition of the passionate programmer which was called my job went to India back then I had done a couple of chapters of books and I knew how much I hated writing I like having written and I think most people who say they want to write a book they actually want to have written a book they don't want to actually write it I hated writing. It's exhausting. It's, you know, it's no fun. You're like in jail until you're done with it. That's the way I say, like, cause every moment that you're not writing it, you should be. And it's, if you're me anyway, you feel like you're constantly procrastinating. So I said to myself and I think even my wife at the time, if I'm going to write this, it has to be about helping people. So I'm going to try and do it from that perspective. And honestly, you know, if you're writing a book about career development the potential impact on someone could be so high that even helping one human being by spending the hours that I did writing that book would have been worth it. And that's the way I motivated myself to finish it. Because if it were just for the money, there's no way, you know, or even for the notoriety of having written the book, I would have given up a quarter of the way through. I
0: really like that, Chad. I like how you, throughout our discussion, you've been tying it back to people and your motivation being connections with people and improving yourself and improving the people around you, I think that's very admirable. And I think uh, that's something I've learned about you that I really appreciate now.
3: Well, thank you. I feel like we not by chance have a group of people like that on this podcast right now. So that's what it's all about. Absolutely.
2: (laughs) Yeah. One of, one of the things that I've found that is, I, I think on display here is that people who are highly empathetic, who have high emotional intelligence, when they're, they're put in a leadership position in, in a hierarchical organization, they will rebel against those constraints. They understand at a deep sort of visceral level that working that way is dehumanizing for people. It's alienating. And they will they will do their best to build a group of people within that structure that can work in a different way to sort of insulate their team from those external forces.
0: Or they'll do what, what I did in my case. I... Uh... My first time around in my career, I worked my way up through management and got to C-level and hated it for those reasons. So I, I dropped out and became an IC and learned how to have power and influence that was more positive.
3: Yeah, I was actually going to propose, which is probably a mistake as a manager of tens of people right now, that people like us actually aren't good at it because we don't want to do it but we're mistaken for people who are good at it because we are empathetic and seem to connect with people.
2: I, I think it's that you're not good at doing it the way that it's being done and that this paradigm doesn't fit with with what you believe and what you know about how people work. I think that's really fair. I, I think that there are other ways to work that you would be happy in and that you could grow in. But we—it's it's very hard to find them.
0: So I'm very interested, Chad. I hope you'll be public and continue to share your thoughts and your learnings as you continue to develop in this area with your new responsibilities?
3: I will try to. I tend to. I tend to overshare.
1: <laughs> yeah. Is it like you're not good at management as you think the job is defined, but you're good at something and people, people are drawn to you. They want to work for you because whatever work you are doing is working.
2: I, so. I've heard it described as the difference between management and leadership. I think that there is management that you can do that works with the way you work and the way you want to relate to other people. I, I think that's why you feel so alienated as a manager in these systems.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. I, I also I had a friend in early in my career who talked about leadership being uh, – what were the words he used? Sort of like you are either the intrinsic natural leader or you are the assigned leader of a group. In the best case is you're both. Uh, that was how he convinced me that I would be okay in my first management job, because he told me, you're already the leader of this group, and explained it to me in those terms. And And he was a very experienced leader
4: in the military.
3: I looked up to him in that way.
4: That actually ties back with the discussion about uh, management, like hierarchy, uh, reminded me of that book by L. David Marquette, uh, Turn the Ship Around, where he was talking about military leadership. But diffusing the job responsibility down through the ranks rather than having every decision go through the commander, if you have everyone have the goal of being good at their job and everyone knows what the overall goal is, then each one of those people can be intrinsically motivated to do that well and don't have to run all their decisions by up the chain and back down again. It's a fascinating idea.
2: You see this over and over again. People will find a way to, to lead and to manage the way that they that they believe is humane. Even within completely hierarchical systems like the military and like corporations, they'll find a way to do it. Or they'll quit.
3: Yeah. Both are valid. I have a copy of that book that uh, the Ship It conference gave us all as speakers last year. And it's sitting on my bedside table. You've just inspired me to actually start reading it finally. <laughs>
2: Yeah, to the extent that that's a good book, it's because the way he manages is not the way that he was taught in the military.
3: Good to know. I think it was the military thing, paradoxically, that sort of turned me off, even though I just told you I was early influenced by a military leader. Sounds good.
4: Also, just to call back to the discussion earlier about measurements distorting systems, I believe that's called Goodhart's Law. It was actually showed up in the, um, in the Greater Than Code Slack channel earlier this week. <laughs> When a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure.
1: See, you should all, and by you, I mean y'all listening to this podcast, you should all donate to Greater Than Code because this is a listener-supported podcast. And as soon as you donate even a dollar to our Patreon, then you get an invitation to the Greater Than Code Slack, which is a really super nice, friendly, low-volume Slack.
0: Where we have very important and interesting discussions. That I learn something almost every day.
1: Me too.
4: And you can find that at patreon.com
0: slash greaterthancode. Thank you, John.
1: Yeah, written out,
0: not with the greater than simple. Yeah. At the end of every episode, we like to reflect on the conversation that we've had and share the things that really stood out to us. I'd like to start. Chad, you were talking about freeing yourself from supposed to. And that is something that really resonated with me because I have a lot of rules for myself. I'm supposed to be this way. I'm supposed to say this thing. I'm supposed to be an expert with X. And um I'm not sure that those supposed to's are always very healthy. I think they can be motivating and they can be used to help me become a better person. But I think that they're also sometimes constraining my self-expression or constraining uh, my ability to make change in myself or the world. So I'm going to try and take that with me and start at least examining the things that I feel like I'm supposed to do.
2: Carlin, I love that so much. So much. So Virginia Satir, of course, talks about survival rules. These are these supposed to's that we learned at some point in our lives as coping mechanisms. Like, don't talk back to your dad. And it's always important to reevaluate those and ask yourself, is this rule still helping me cope today?
3: Yeah, I think the the worst ones are the ones that you don't know you have, too. Just interjecting there. So some you know you have, but we all have so many that we don't realize that we're adhering to are just implicit
1: that are covering so over true. our voice.
4: Yeah. Courtline one little hack I have for, for that is to change the word supposed to into choose and simply saying it as I choose to do X, I choose to be an expert in whatever
2: can help that feel more voluntary. Awesome. Another one that I learned from Virginia Satir is to say until now, I always do X until now.
4: Yeah, that's great.
0: It's mm. all really helpful. Thank you, everyone. Um, John, do you have any thoughts?
2: Yeah, I mean,
4: I think it goes back to the the thinking I've been doing through this whole episode about focusing on self as a gateway to understanding other people. It's something that I've emphasized in some of the things that I talk about, but I it's also something that I could get a lot better at. And it's uh, and the the mindfulness path Chad that you've taken to get there is. Some of these very interesting to me and so and I think I'm going to redouble my efforts to practice that.
1: I liked the part about how our duty in the world in order to help other people emotionally is to take care of ourselves, to focus on ourselves with awareness, to notice how different things that we feel come in reaction to different stimuluses in our context and how that's not the same all the time. And we can notice what makes us happy and find our direction from that. I thought it was interesting, Chad, that you said you do think that personal happiness should be our goal. But I don't think happiness by itself makes a goal. I think my own happiness is a clue that I have found a goal that really speaks to me, that feels true to me. Uh, This comes from the book Obliquity. Uh, so so right now, my current goal is to change the way we think about software development. And I find that really inspiring. And when I do work in that direction, then I feel happiness. And I so I, I feel like happiness is is a clue. And I have another one because there was that bit about you're not an empath, you're doing empathy. And it's the same thing as I'm not a real programmer, I'm doing programming. And that's all that matters. And when we think about it that way, it lets us not focus on the code and identify with the code, but instead with what we're accomplishing with the code.
3: Good ones.
2: There is a book that I found on the internet uh, by Gordon Pask called The Cybernetics of Human Learning and Performance, and it presents a bunch of really useful models for how Learning systems interact. So this observer effect, where observations and the observer are, you know, interact in in complex ways, uh, it has great models for that. It it talks about sort of models for learning and education. So much of the stuff that we're talking about, I've I've found that book has helped me to have, to build better mental models for. So I'm going to plug that book. I don't know how you're going to find it except on one of those sites that is of dubious legality, but it's great.
0: Chad, what are you taking away from this conversation? Uh, A bunch of things I should be reading,
3: for one. I don't know. This sort of conversation, it's great to run all these internal dialogues that you have with yourself constantly through a bunch of other people who are thinking about the same stuff. So, you know, in certain ways, I think I have just recommitted myself to the same behaviors the positive ones because of course you know i wasn't sitting here telling you about all the failures that i have to do this stuff although i guess i wasn't entirely positive but yeah i mean i think you you all challenged some of the assumptions i had about the way i was talking about empathy and understanding other people management so i can't say that there's one thing it's more than uh i know i've come through I've passed through this filter with a different version of my own approach to these thoughts that I'm going to try and experiment with.
0: I think we all experience that to some degree, Chad, and I'm glad you had that experience. So thank you so much for being on the show. I think this was a great episode, and I'm looking forward to hearing how people react to it, either in Slack or on Twitter. Um, So please reach out. We are a community, and we want you to be part of our community. Chad, thank you so much.
3: Thank you.